0: Welcome to the 7 Figures Podcast, smart money strategies for women with Sandy Waters. 7 Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union. Today on the show, interest rate versus APR. What's the difference? We'll break it down in no dumb questions. Plus, do you know your survival number? It's a pretty important number to know. Julie, the investing Latina, will teach us how to figure it out. And we'll take a seat at the kids' table. When your kid wants something really bad but doesn't have the money to pay for it, what do they do? We'll see what the kids say and what advice our money expert has for parents. All of that today on the 7 Figures Podcast. Here's Sandy Waters.
1: It's so great that you are here. A lot of you, I know, you're thinking, gosh, it would be so much easier and I would love to just push the financial responsibility off to somebody else. But trust me, it is an incredible feeling to proudly say that you are a financially confident woman and you might not be there just yet. Don't worry, we're going to help you get there. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. Thank you for subscribing, telling a friend about the show. I just love hearing from you directly, especially about your money victories. Quick shout out to Marcy Ofinowitz, She said she just paid off $8,000 in credit card debt. Oh, Marcy, how amazing that must feel to say that out loud. And I'm sure it was a lot of hard work to get there, but we will cheers to you, Marcy. Congratulations, Marcy Ofinowitz. All of the million things you have on your mind, Googling the answer to simple money questions probably falls to the bottom of the list. And that is why we start with no dumb questions. Our CFP, Erica Cummings from the Harmony Financial Wellness Group at RBC Wealth Management is here. Hi, Erica. Hello. How are you? Good. Okay. So this is a simple explanation to the financial terms that confuse most people. Yeah. And I think you would agree interest rate versus APR falls in that category.
2: Yes. And it's actually very important right now because a lot of people are considering either refinancing because rates are so low or they're looking to buy a home because rates are so low. And you get just a plethora of paperwork and it is one of the most, the, the most confusing things about it is what's the difference between this interest rate that I have versus this APR, which is, it stands for annual percentage rate. And they're two very frequently conflated terms that they refer to similar concepts, but they have little subtle differences when it comes to calculations. And it is and it is important when you're looking to maybe shop rates and figure out which bank to actually settle on or credit unions to settle on. So. Basically, the interest rate is the cost of borrowing the principal. So, if you're taking out a $300,000 mortgage and you're taking it for 30 years, and let's say the rate's 3.75%, that's the cost of just borrowing that $300,000. So, when you're looking at that rate, it's going to look very similar to every other bank. They're all kind of competing within that same range. The APR is almost always higher. Than the interest rate and that's what gets people a little confused um, because the APR the annual percentage rate includes all the other costs associated with borrowing the money so the interest rate is just used to calculate how much the actual amount you are borrowing is going to cost you however the APR is the more effective rate to consider when you're comparing loans So it includes not only the interest expense, so what we talked about before, how much it costs to actually borrow that initial amount, but it also includes all the fees and the other costs involved in actually getting the loan. So the fees can include broker fees, closing costs, rebates, discounts on points, and these are often expressed as a percentage. So the APR should always be typically greater than or equal to that actual what we call nominal interest rate so the cost of actually borrowing the money in an example where you have um, a mortgage loan for $200,000 and it's a 6% interest rate your annual interest expense would amount to $12,000 or a monthly amount of $1,000 so it's co- that's what it's cost you to just borrow that money but if you consider the fact that your home purchase also requires closing costs origination fees, all of these things that are associated with actually borrowing. So this is how the bank makes money and all of those other things that are associated with that. A 6% interest rate is then used to, on top of the loans, um, all those costs, you might end up with an APR of 6.15. Once you look at that 6.15, it actually means that your annual payment will be about 12300 so if you're rolling in closing costs, and you take into account all of those different fees, that's what the APR is. When you're looking at different banks, that's the way to determine which bank is truly giving you the best price. Okay. You can have an interest rate of both banks that say 3.75, but if the APR at one bank is 4, and the APR at the other bank is 4.1, the bank that's 4.1 is actually charging you more on the, on the entire mortgage. So that's where you can have some back and forth with banks.
1: And that little bit, you think, oh, it's only point one. Well, it, it it's your money.
2: Oh, it's it it when you add it up over 30 years, it's it's significant. Yeah. So think about what you're borrowing and times it by point one, and that's how much more you're paying if you go to one bank over the other. And there's nothing wrong with shopping rates. There's nothing wrong with shopping around and and looking at different banks or different credit unions to make sure that you're getting the best the best possible rate. But that APR is what's going to determine how much you're paying over time and which bank you should choose.
1: All right. Perfect. Erica, where can we uh, find you and follow you? You can find me
2: at www.harmonyfinancialwellness.com. We also have a Facebook page. That's Harmony Financial Wellness. Uh, We have a couple of seminars coming up webinars uh in august and september so please reach out Erica.comings at rbc.com
1: perfect have a good weekend you too what would you say is one thing you learned about yourself throughout this pandemic i don't know if you're thinking the same thing i am but i have learned that i am an introvert i am completely fine being in my own little bubble over here. But more importantly, this whole pandemic has taught us a lot about our finances. We're paying more attention to what we're spending our money on. We have a new appreciation for our streams of income. And this is the perfect time to figure out what our survival number is. Julie Alma Taveras, the investing Latina, is here with us to explain. Thanks, Julie, for coming on the show. Thank you, Sandy. I'm so happy to be here.
3: Thanks for inviting me on.
1: Absolutely. We've been following you on YouTube and all your other social media platforms, and all your work is so fantastic, so we appreciate it.
3: Thank you. I know this pandemic has like really lit people up in terms of starting to look at, okay, what's my real situation when it yeah. comes to money? So I'm happy that we're having this combo. Before you were the investing
1: Latina, you were... Pretty much in the same spot. Spending Latina. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You were in the same spot. A lot of people who are listening are, you
3: know, dealing with, yeah, debt and all
1: the emotions that come with it.
3: Oh my God. I got into so much debt. So, a little bit of my story is I grew up in New York, even though I was born in the Dominican Republic. I'm an island girl. Um, I grew up in New York and I actually studied fashion design and merchandising through throughout high school and also in college and I was always obsessed with fashion magazines and going shopping, going to the mall. Every single weekend, that was like my mom's favorite activity. (laughs) And it was something that was really kind of passed down to me because uh, it was something that we did so frequently. And I always had a lot of fun putting things together and, and designing and coming up with ideas. And for me, it really led me to not only dig deeper into the career that I ended up in which is fashion and I went into a lot of different things within the fashion world but unfortunately I also lost a little bit of control in my own personal spending when it came to it so I would go out and do market research for brands that I would be working with and for and I'd be like okay let me go to Bloomingdale's I I worked for Bloomingdale's and um I would say, let me go do the market research, let me see what's on the floor, and let me look at people, let me observe people shopping. So this was part of my job. This was the work that I did. But what happened is, as I was doing that, I found dresses here and shoes over there. (laughs) That's dangerous. And and it was so dangerous. It got me into so much debt. And it happened so quickly. It happened literally like while I was through through the end of my college career and then the the first few years of working, which also um, happened to to collide with like this whole lifestyle inflation because I went from being, you know, a, a broke college student with just like regular jobs here and there, making some money to having a salary and having all of this extra money that I never had before. So those things combined really were the kind of, perfect storm to create this um, uh, lifestyle that I established and what really ultimately ended up what I recognize as a shopping addiction, because not only was I doing it for the purpose of my work, But it also uh, infiltrated my my life personally. When I felt sad, I would go shopping. When I was happy Mm. and celebrating something, I would go shopping. So those were the things that led me to a lot, a lot of consumer debt that I felt suffocated by. And I know if you're listening to this and you've been in that situation, you can't breathe. Like, it's horrible.
1: And you ignore it. I mean, we're all nodding along when you're like, when I was in a funk, I went shopping when I was, and especially at that time in your life, you, there's, you're not responsible for anybody else taking care of anybody right. else. This is all just right. your money. So I feel like at that point, especially for a lot of us, that's our weakest moment as far as staying on the straight and narrow.
3: Right. Because you don't feel like you have to be very responsible, right? And you don't have these big, a mortgage to pay Mm -hmm. or these big bills. I mean, when I went to school and even after I graduated, I stayed with my parents. It was so convenient. I was so comfortable with the situation (laughs) that I, uh, you know, took advantage of that. But what that also meant was that I really wasn't dealing with these like hard uh, responsibilities, you know? Yeah. So
1: now you find yourself in debt and it must have been, I mean, there are a lot of emotions that come along with all of that.
3: Yeah, for sure. I I definitely felt very suffocated by it. I felt like I couldn't get out of it because I was making payments. And even with the the money that I was making, I was still overspending. And what I really had to do was kind of stop and put my head down and not do the things that I was used to doing like going out for dinners with my friends and constantly going to happy hours with co-workers and and easily in New York spending $80 on a, on a meal and like two yeah. drinks yeah so I I had to really stop and and sort of self-reflect on the activities that I did on a daily basis and where was I going to put more emphasis and value into into which activities? So I cut back on like the happy hours and I would just, you know, do a lunch thing with coworkers or if I was networking with someone in the industry and I kept it, I kind of simplified things. And that's really where like my survival number uh, kind of comes from that yeah. of simplicity, a minimalism. Uh, and it was very hard. It took me a good, uh, I believe it was like a year and a half, almost two years to really get out of all of the, all of the debt. Uh, but when I did it, oh my God, it was the best uh, thing in the world. I that's was so what, happy. Oh
1: gosh. We say it all the time. It is really, truly an incredible feeling. I think you would yeah. agree. We want every single person listening to feel the feeling of being in control. It's awesome.
3: Right. It really is. And at that point, I was just like, I could do whatever I want now. And it was also because I had been in a sense kind of going through at the beginning, it felt like I was depriving myself of the Mm -hmm. things that I really wanted. But it wasn't they weren't things that I wanted. They were just things that I was in the habit of doing. Ah. So at the beginning, I felt like, oh, my God, life isn't the same. I'm deprived. But slowly, I start to realize like, no, it's just, it wasn't, it was something that I did. It was fun. It was great. uh, But it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the financial ruin that debt causes, you know?
1: Is this something that only you could tell yourself or was there something that somebody else could have told you? The scenarios come to mind uh of the couple who is on opposite ends of finances or... You know, the relationship between parent and child, is there something a parent can say? Mm-hmm. Did your parents look at you and say, come on, Julie?
3: Yeah, I think that it's a combination of things because when I was in all of the debt, something that I can never forget is that feeling of shame. Mm-hmm. And that feeling of shame, I realize comes from what we hear from other people, right? And, and the fact that my parents, they, they told me, you know, don't go overspend, make sure you're saving for a rainy day. They told me these sort of basic things, you know, that are really important that we kind of hear that are generalized. Uh, and it, it kind of, the reaction to that was kind of the shame once I was in that situation. So yes, we hear from other people and when we're in it, we we start to think like, oh man, they they were right. You know, I shouldn't have done that. I I should have been more cautious and and spent less. Uh, But then there is also that element of you, not that you have to go through things, but when you actually do experience things, You feel them differently, Mm. you know, versus Mm -hmm. what somebody else can tell you, you know, it's a completely it's a much more transformative experience when you go through these things.
1: So now let's get to the survival number.
3: Teach us how to figure this out. Yes. So I became, in throughout this whole process of really shopping less and, and getting my finances in order, I truly became a minimalist. And it was something that had also been very trendy, you know, in the news and in, in media, everybody uh, was converting to minimalism because for many different reasons. Uh, and, and to the purpose is to simplify life. So once I started doing that, I applied it to all of my my lifestyle with the things that I bought and my home. And then the last part was applying it to my finances. And this is something that I came up with last year, my survival number. And I really did it for an interesting purpose. It was for the reason of um, investing more money. So I wanted to know what was the number that I needed to survive in any given month? how what's the the bare minimum bare bones budget right As like we can call it so what is that number for me and I wanted to know that number because I want that number to kind of be in my mind and be a reminder for me personally that number is 581 dollars per month that's what I need to survive and it includes like the basic necessities and also a little bit of entertainment because at the end of the day, we're living creatures and we need to be entertained. We need to have fun in one way or another. And so that, that 581 is the number that I know every single month. That's what I need to survive everything that I have above 581. So however much money I make, whatever it may be, I'm a contract employee. So I work on various different projects and my income goes up and down. Oh, geez, yeah.
1: You got to hustle for your money. Yeah. So, oh, yeah,
3: for sure. But what survival number does for me is it gives me peace and a sense of security. So I have that number, and I said, okay, as soon as the 581 is covered, I'm good to go. Everything beyond that is money that I can invest. And for me, investing is super important, especially now I, I am in my 30s. Now I am I, going to be 32 at the end of this year. So for me, this is the moment that I'm that I'm making the most money in my life, and that I need to be smart with that money. So I instead of uh, because I went through that phase of lifestyle inflation early on in life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now as I make more money it doesn't um, I'm not spending it in that way I'm not affected by lifestyle inflation I don't feel like if I make so much more money this month, I I should go out and and buy a Chanel bag, which I did in my past. (laughs) You're like, but I already did that. Okay. (laughs) Because I already did that. You know, so it's, it's really uh, interesting for me because I did go through all those things, Mm -hmm. but now everything that I make over my survival number, I get to invest and use it on things that I really truly value, whether yeah. that be an experience with my family to go out and do something, whether it be uh, buying a new uh, item for like technology for my YouTube channel, which is something that I work on constantly and I'm trying to grow and 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 re- I'm really like motivated by it. So it, it really allows me much more freedom and flexibility as long as I have that survival number in 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 my head figured out everything else becomes a little bit easier and that
1: survival number you have to just factor in the the needs and that sometimes we lie Mm -hmm. to ourselves what a need Mm -hmm. versus a want is like you kind of did for your job you were buying the chanel bags (laughs) (laughs) you know we all i think fall into that so got to be completely honest determine your survival number and then the rest is uh it feels good and then you know what I do this Mm -hmm. sounds a little uh it might sound a little crazy but whatever so in the store if I love something so much but I I know it's not right to buy I will walk around the store with it as if I am gonna buy it and then I just put it back on the shelves for some reason that just holding it and either (laughs) just having it with me thinking I'm gonna take it home is enough I don't
3: I absolutely love that Sandy. You know why? Because it actually reminds me when I was, you know, buying Chanel bags and Louboutins yeah. all the time, I would be in the stores all the time. And I would always take a little photo with that, with whatever new trendy bag I was looking at. And, uh, It's so funny because I think I had that same feeling that you practice now where it's like, oh, well, I didn't buy this thing, but I have that photo and I I still (laughs) feel like, you know, I experienced it in a way. So I love your mentality of experiencing it for a little while and then letting it go. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh,
3: (laughs) Julie, where can we
1: find you and follow you in, uh, And yeah, learn more about everything that you're putting out there.
3: Yes, absolutely. I contribute to time.com slash next advisor, which is a personal finance website. And I also am on YouTube, Investing Latina. And I'm on Instagram. And on Instagram, I talk about all kinds of fun money related things. Today, I'm talking about the importance of figuring out if you're going to marry for love or for Ooh. money.
1: <laughs>
3: Ooh, I like that one. So, so I like to have a lot of fun on on the on the platform. So, be sure to follow. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great one, Sandy. All
1: right, it's time now to take a seat at the kids' table. Our money expert CEO of Money Savvy Generation, Susan Beecham, is here. Hello, Susan. Hi, Sandy. Today, we had parents ask their kids, if you want something really bad, but you don't have the money for it, what do you do? This is a struggle for all of us, right? Not just the kids. But here's what the kids said. If
4: there's something you want really bad and you don't have the money to get it, what do you do?
0: Ask you, put on my Christmas list, or just save up. Don't buy it? Sell popsicles and get 40 bucks. If I want something right now,
2: and I don't have the money, I'd probably, um, start saving. or since I do guitar, I'd probably do guitar on my front
0: porch and see if people will, like, pay me, like they do in all those big cities. What would you do? Just grab it.
4: I really want. I really want to move that child. I really. Do. <laughs> I don't
1: just grab it. Five years old, by the way, for the record, just a five-year-old little mooch. So of course, just grab it. What do you mean? What, what does money have to do with anything? She's gonna um, have way too much fun in her life. for her oh, I know. Oh gosh, those kids are so adorable. Okay, so it is a struggle, right? When your kids are begging for something or asking for something, as the parent. What do you do when they don't have the money? I mean, this feels
4: like the time to teach a valuable money lesson. You're right. Uh, Let's take this in steps. Okay. The first step was brilliant. Ask the kids for their ideas. Anytime you start by asking a question rather than delivering a lecture, you're going to have more success. So that was a pretty impressive list. Totally understand why the first step would be to ask mom. Uh, interesting, not ask dad. There is some interesting research around that, that um, mom gives, dad resists. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's not how it is in my house, but okay. All right. (laughs) You know, it's a possibility that the Christmas list is a good idea. Um, I loved hearing don't buy it, who is that child? That's brilliant. There's, mm-hmm. a, there's a, a young man who's already talking about delayed gratification, saving, selling popsicles. These are all brilliant ideas. So there's a delay component, and we already talked about, and we'll mention it again, the importance of the ability to delay gratification. And we know it's not something our kids are born with. Some, like my friend who said, don't buy it, some have that instinct, but it's a alert delayed gratification is a learned behavior. And it's an important behavior to learn because all of the research tells us the child who can delay gratification, self master exhibits self control, simply has better life outcomes, more success, more wealth, better health. So this is an opportunity to take all these suggestions, which have a delay component and encourage them as well. I tell kids make a wish list, take that wish list. And every time there's something that's tickling your fancy, write it on the list, keep it in your wallet, keep it in your pocket whenever you're out with mom and dad. And look at that list and say to yourself, is this still what I want? If you're unsure, start to um, prioritize the list. Then, Unpack the ask. That's the second step. Whenever your child asks you for something like a week ago, we were talking about cars. Don't um, get paralyzed. Take a deep breath and start to unpack it. Again, asking, asking the questions of yourself and the child. Is this a need or is this a want? And if it's a need, offer to match the need. So they save a dollar, you match it to a dollar, to a certain amount. That's a delayed gratification technique. Saving is involved. It's a fundamental skill here. And you're asking the child to wait, but success breeds success. And at younger ages, a week can be a lifetime. So if a child wants something that they're going to have to um, come up with the money for that's in the tens, twenties, or $30, you have to take a look at the age of the child. And if it's a 10-year-old, they can wait. But if it's a seven-year-old, you have to help them along. And then the last step is make sure you help them take action. So don't just talk about it, do something. So in addition to that list, that brilliant list those kids came up with, I would add earning money. Introduce your child to the empowering option of earning money through entrepreneurship, and that can be launched at any age. Brainstorm a list with the family at dinner on how your child can earn money. Maybe it's babysitting siblings. Maybe it's giving you some IT help. Give them options on how they can take action on earning money rather than simply putting it on a list and waiting for someone else to provide it for them. Because all those suggestions, uh, aside from the popsicles, were someone else giving to them. And the last suggestion here, helping them to take action, is actually empowering them to get it for themselves by earning money.
1: Wonderful. Helping our kids form good money habits.
4: Exactly.
1: Where can, uh, where can we follow
4: you? What are you working on, Susan? You may follow me at my blog, which is at susanbeecham.com, And you can find a lot of our Money Savvy Generations award-winning products and some free resources at Money Savvy. That's two V's, S-A-V-V-Y.com. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Sandy. That wraps it up another week.
1: If there's ever a topic that you want us to answer in No Dumb Questions, if there's a guest you want me to try to get on the show, or if you need help talking to the kids about money, you just reach out anytime. This podcast is for you. SandyWaters989 at gmail.com. Cheers to each and every single one of you who is proud to say that you are on your way to being a financially confident woman. Talk to you next week.
0: Thanks for listening to the Seven Figures podcast. Click subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Seven Figures is sponsored by Advantage Federal Credit Union.